0: Hello, baseball and umpire fans, and welcome to The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Joining me on this episode is longtime Baseball Canada umpire, international experienced, and a guy that prefers hard ice cream over soft, rob allen topics we look to cover are him getting saved by the san diego chicken his experience at the pan am games and being an injury reserve replacement umpire at the canada games so sit back relax get ready it's coming hello baseball and umpire fans and welcome to episode nine of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Let's make this quick, okay? I'm going to do the Facebook plug. Log on to Facebook, go to Leading Edge Umpire Stories to follow us on Facebook and catch into some weekly previews and giveaways that we might have. So again, Facebook, Leading Edge Umpire Stories, like, share, follow us, all that fun stuff. We really appreciate the audience. Now, before we get into this week's episode, we always like to go back and talk about the last episode. On that last episode, episode 8, we had on Kevin Manzik, a minor league umpire. And he shared with us some of his experiences with the amateur level, independent professional baseball, and how he's gotten into affiliate baseball. So... Here's a little clip of what you may have heard or what you're missing.
1: So I I remember it was actually in my first year of umpiring. I had the opportunity to work the Mosquito. I think I can't remember if it was double A or triple A provincials. Fortunate enough to be selected to work the gold medal game. You know, every time you're moving up, it's getting faster. You know, guys are bigger. Guys can throw harder. And as soon as he opened the door to the locker room, you could just hear him screaming. He was mad. (laughs) You had to go out there and wear this plate coat in 35 degree weather. I only I only worked the one season in there, but you know it was definitely a challenge for me at that age. Um, that was the, the highest level of baseball I'd worked at the time. He got pretty heated. We went back and forth a little bit. I ended up having to throw him out near the end of the ejection. He took his hat off and, like an old-time manager, fired it down at the ground, and then he picked it up and walked off like the gentleman that he was. I just got I got in the rule book as much as I could. You know whether it was 15, 20 minutes a day reading the rule book.
0: Sounds like marriage. <laughs>
1: I know in my first year in the New York Penn League, we were in Brooklyn and Noah Syndergaard was just coming back from injury and he was scheduled to start. Yes, I have. I no longer throw the same guy out six times. So what you're saying, this coach got ejected four times in the same game. Yeah, something like that. I don't remember the exact amount of mechanics I gave, but it was, it was more than I needed to. There's guys, you know, I went to the field a few times on our days off to just go over some, some footwork and some positioning and stuff and go over some plays. I do it for the love of the game now. Hopefully one day for the money. Well, Kevin, we know you don't do it for the money if you're
0: working minor league baseball on your little salary, but we do wish you the best of luck in chasing your dreams and getting to the major league level. But when you get there, don't forget about your fans over here at Leading Edge Umpire Stories Entertainment. And don't be scared to shovel us a little bit of cash if you know what we're saying. But for everyone listening, if you do want to hear that, episode, you can log on to Spotify, Apple Podcast, iTunes Podcast, Google Podcast, Podbean, TuneIn, all your favorite podding places. If we're not where you want to be, then let us know and we'll get on it. Okay, all the formalities are done. It's time to move on with this week's episode and get to the reason why you're here. So without further ado, Leading Edge Umpire Stories Entertainment is proud to bring on Baseball Canada, Minor Affiliate Experience, and World Baseball Experienced Umpire, and a guy who studies the dictionary rob allen rob welcome to the leading edge thanks phil glad to be here well we're honored rob that you could give us the time to come on the leading edge and really share with us some of your umpire stories but before we get to that can you please share with our listeners a little background of your playing career
2: well, I actually started off playing when I was a kid. I started playing softball, actually fast pitch,
0: and then uh, when I was 15, I actually
2: switched to baseball, which was similar with my umpiring career. I I started off as a softball umpire when I was 10, and then when I was 15, I switched to playing umpiring baseball as well. Um, so at 15, I started playing uh, baseball, and I switched over. It was quite a big change in the game. However, at first, I was just smoking the ball. They were throwing me fastballs and. It felt like the pitch was coming from so far away that I had all the time in the world to hit this thing. And and I was just hammering it. And then one day this pitch start was coming at my head and I hit the dirt and umpire friend of mine actually was working plate named Les Swain from Canelops. He calls a strike. Meanwhile, I'm in the dirt looking going, what the hell just happened there? I saw my first curveball in baseball. And I was like, what the hell is that? After that point, I think my batting average is probably about 450 hitting fastballs. And then it went to about 096 after that. All I saw was curveballs for the rest of my career in minor baseball. So I started realizing quickly that uh, I was a much better umpire than I
0: was a player. Please don't tell us that you ended your career there. I played till I was
2: 18 and I did all right. I started figuring out the curveball and that, but yeah, they wouldn't throw me fastballs anymore after that. I I got steady curveball, curveball, curveball. So I hit a few of them. Um, We actually had, years later, an umpire versus, uh, I think it was the North Shore Twins in the Premier League, and we had a game, it was John Harr who used to run the NBI program in in Vancouver, and he was pitching for the North Shore Twins team, and it was just a fun umpire game. He hung a curveball, and I hit it off the wall, so I was pretty happy with that, so I finally learned how to hit the curveball, but it was too late.
0: Well, it's never really too late, Rob. Aren't there a couple baseball movies called Trouble with the Curve and The Rookie? Yeah, yeah, I believe there is. Any chance that they're actually about you? Um, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope not either. But in all fairness, Rob, why did you make the transition from softball to baseball?
2: Well, I was doing fairly well at fast pitch. I, I was umpiring at a young age. I was umpiring very high level of ball. At 12 and 13 years old, I was umpiring the men's and women's fast pitch leagues in Camloops, where I grew up. They thought I was much older because I was probably about six feet tall at that time. So they thought I was older, but I just thought of a different challenge and I wanted to play baseball. And so when I started doing baseball and softball, I really liked baseball a lot more. By the time I was 17, I decided that I wanted to actually attend a professional umpire school and try to get a job as a minor league umpire. And so at that point, I decided that it was time to do one or the other, you know, strike zones were different. My strike zone in softball was too small. My strike zone in baseball was too big. Some different rule differences. So at 17, I decided that I was only going to do baseball, and I really haven't looked back.
0: Got a real simple question for you. Why did you get into umpiring?
2: What started off with is uh, my dad started umpiring. He mainly started umpiring out of necessity. It was basically a thing where he was the only dad that would show up on time for the, the game when I was younger. And uh, so they didn't hire umpires back then. They basically just grabbed a dad. So none of the dads would show up on time and so my dad would be there and he started umpiring so he thought well if i'm going to be umpiring all these games i probably should learn how to do it so he went and got certified Uh, right around the same time there's a friend of ours who was involved with softball named fran pope she passed away a few years ago but she said to me she says you know what i think you would make a good umpire maybe you should take and i'm as a 10 year old i'm not sure if she said this because i was a big fat kid or what going on but uh (laughs) i looked like an umpire but uh, she she uh, encouraged me to, to take the course as well. So I took it with my dad and, and uh, we both passed it and uh, we started umpiring. And at first I would just, I would do anything to umpire a few games, whether it be, I'd walk down to MacArthur Island in Camels and, and I'd find a men's or a co-ed slow pitch game going on. And I just asked, Hey, can I umpire first base? And they'd be like, sure, I guess. And you know, I didn't even ask for money or anything. I didn't want, I just wanted to umpire, just loved it. And then they started uh, getting me on the roster to do games for the fast pitch leagues and that. And so, yeah. So at first there was really no incentive for the money, but then after a while I started realizing, Whoa, they're actually paying me for this. This is great. I remember, um, I think it was, they used to make us do slow pitch too, which was another reason I probably quit umpiring softball because I hated umpiring slow, pitch however the good news about doing slow pitch was that the games were only an hour and 15 minutes long back in it was like in the 80s they paid you 25 dollars a game so i'd do a double header on a tuesday night and make 50 bucks as a as a 12 year old kid i was like wow this is great
0: (laughs) 50 bucks for a couple hours work in the 80s that sounds pretty great i don't think the game fees have kept up with inflation though (laughs) no But having your father go out and umpire your games and take a few bruises for you, it really does sound like fatherly love to me.
2: Well, there was one time where um, we did not talk all the way home when he called me on a strike three call that uh, I I think I didn't talk to him for about a week because it was outside and he called a strike three. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I almost got ejected out of the game. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it was a very quiet ride home.
0: (laughs) I always thought the silent treatment was reserved for wives and their husbands.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Well, especially when the pitch was that far outside.
0: <laughs> He's still sour about it thirty years later, people. At
2: least thirty years later.
0: Considering it was that low and outside, is there any chance your father was from downtown Saskatoon where they struggle with the low outside pitch? Or you can be honest with us. Have you ever missed the low outside pitch? I might have missed a
2: few on my in my day. Might have called a few that unintentionally that were outside. Who knows? I don't
0: know. Some have trouble with the curve, others have trouble with the outside pitch. <laughs> yeah. Now, Rob, you mentioned you went to umpire school. How long after did you go and where did you go?
2: It was four years later. I was 21. I went to Jim Evans Academy of Fresh Umpiring, and uh, that gave me a really good foundation.
0: Now, those schools really always do. Now, what year did you go to school? I went in uh, 1997.
2: We had, uh, there was 140 students that year, and it was six days a week. It was probably the most intense uh, five weeks of my life, but it was also the most fun I've ever had in my life.
0: Now, I've never met anybody that's gone to umpire school that says they did not enjoy it, but a class of 140, that's a pretty big class, isn't it? Yeah, it
2: was. There was, yeah, we had students from, at that time, I think there were students from Japan. There was eight students from Japan, four from Australia. We had four umpires from Canada. Um, Chris Norton, who was mentioned in another one, we found out just the other day, or not the other day, a couple of years ago, we found out that we went to umpire school together. We were talking about going, and he's like, oh yeah, I went to Jim Evans too. And I'm like, oh, what year? He said, 97. I said, so did I. <laughs> so sure enough, I had to look because we had this picture of, the, of four, the four umpires. And sure enough, there's Chris. <laughs> so we went to umpire school together in 97. It was pretty fun.
0: Well, when you're getting up in age, sometimes years seem like days with all the memories and <laughs> stories. <laughs> yep. From that class, is there anybody currently working Major League Baseball right now? Uh,
2: there was a couple guys that got close, but nobody nobody from that class made it, which is unusual. Um, there was 20, I think there was 20 jobs given the minor leagues. Um, so none of those 20 made it
0: into the majors. Unusual, but there was a time when there wasn't a lot of job openings opening up there was the strike there was various reasons and we're seeing a lot more jobs these days because of instant replay the expansion of crews and more vacation of time and contract negotiations
2: well and that's true there was some movement in 99 which was two years after however those guys were not ready to jump, make the jump they were still in single a um so then there was a lull because there were so many hires in 99 uh there was a time there for 10 years or so that there wasn't too many jobs and I think Ian Alamplu from Victoria was also in that kind of scene. He didn't get a job.
0: Unfortunately, sometimes you're close, but you're not close enough. Yep. That's just the way the dice rolls. Now again, I haven't heard of anybody going to Umpire School that hasn't really come away with some kind of advancement in their career, whether at the professional or amateur level.
2: Yeah, it's funny you say that. One of the things I remember biggest from Umpire School was uh you were talking the other night about indicator or clicker was one of your questions and uh when i went down part of school that was one of the things that jim said the first day was something about proper terms and calling a manager uh, by his name and not calling him a coach and somebody like that you know just the proper terminology and, and then they, he mentioned that this is an indicator not a clicker so one of the first days we ran onto the field i had the indicator in my back pocket because i knew we were going to do some balls and strike calls just you know so sure enough jim says hey everybody you know, did you bring your clicker? And I was like, oh man, I'm so proud of myself. I remember to bring it. And I pull this thing out and hold up my arm in the air. And Jim's like, okay, anybody who has their hand in the air, take your cage group. Cause you each had a cage group of five guys and now you're going to be running laps. Oh Right. And I'm like, and I'm holding my arm, but I said, but I got a clicker. I got it right here. Right. And I'm holding my arm in the air. So my cage group's looking at me and says, Rob, put your arm down i'm like i don't what do you mean put my arm down? i have a clicker and so we start running this lap and it was only about halfway through the lap that i realized oh it's an indicator not a clicker dang it <laughs> so when you said that question the other day i was very happy to see indicator was said and not clicker because that might make makes my blood boil
0: i guess you could say that's kind of like pavlov's dog isn't it <laughs> it's negative reinforcement
2: Yes, it does. I will never call it a clicker again. <laughs>
0: no. Well, that's good because we're all about the right terminology here on The Leading Edge and using the word indicator. So after you've run your laps, please tell us that the school gets better from there.
2: Um, yeah, it did get better from there. Uh, I did fairly well. It was interesting on the rules part. A lot of the U.S. umpires, they run on different rule sets, it, it, depending on if they're high school or whatever. Luckily here in, in Baseball Canada, we basically go by pro rules, so... Um, The Canadian umpires did much better on the rules because we weren't getting confused between the The different sets and then there was also that year Tyler Hoffman from BC was one of the instructors he just been given a job as a minor league umpire (laughs) he was from Qualcomm Beach um, and he was one of the instructors there so that was neat uh, because me and Tyler knew each other from before and and we're kind of coming up through the system together in baseball Canada so yeah it was was just a really great experience I can't say if you ever have a chance even to go to a one-week camp professional umpire school or, or or the full five weeks you coming back you can give your knowledge that you've learned there even if you don't get a job as a as a minor league umpire
0: now it's pretty safe to assume that the goal of everyone going to professional umpire school is to probably get a job in minor league baseball were you offered a job
2: um they told me that uh, they had 20 jobs to give that year I was ranked. Uh, they told me 21 and that they were going to put me on the reserve list. Uh, I never got a call from the reserve list. I'm guessing one of the issues of being a reserve list and being a Canadian at that time is that they would have had trouble doing paperwork quickly. But I considered going back to Empire school, but I ended up going to college and doing a, a three-year course out of that. And right out of college, I ended up getting a job. So I decided that, uh, I was not going to go back down prior to umpire school, so I never did. But uh, sometimes I wish I had, and who knows what would have happened.
0: Well, that's fair, but sometimes when you're looking at a guaranteed income versus the potential, it's kind of hard.
2: Yeah, I was really kind of looking at what Ian was doing in the major, in the minor leagues and how it was um, tough on him. He wasn't making a lot of money and had no guarantee. So it was kind of a thing like, is that the lifestyle I want? Or, And I was making a lot more money at the job that I had just gotten out of college. So it was kind of like, Ew.
0: And over the years, it's always been wishy-washy for international umpires to get a job in minor league baseball. There was a time when they weren't really recruiting Canadians per se. Did that affect your decision?
2: Uh, yeah, we were, it was kind of at the end of that. Be- definitely before it was really hard. Who knows? With you know me being so close, maybe maybe it was one of the decisions. I I, I don't really know, but uh, I know there was other Canadians that were getting jobs at that time such as uh, Tyler Hoffman and Ian and that. But yeah, it's it's hard to say. Uh, but yeah, definitely before that, it was a lot harder for Canadians to get a job in the minor leagues.
0: Well, don't doubt yourself. You have done quite well. And we're going to talk about what that quite well is. You've come back from umpire school. Where do you come back to? Uh,
2: so I uh, grew up in Kamloops, BC, When in my mm-hmm. early 20s. After um, I came back from umpire school, uh, I went to college in Kamloops as well. And then I got my job and it was in Vancouver. And then I lived in Vancouver for probably about 20 some odd years in the the lower mainland. But Canlis is where I really got started and uh, gave me lots of opportunities. As a young umpire, I was uh, probably given a lot more opportunities because I lived in Canlis as opposed to, say, Vancouver, uh, mainly because they didn't have a lot of umpires doing games at levels that I probably shouldn't have been doing. But I seemed to survive.
0: Well, there's the old saying, right place, right time.
2: There's definitely right place, right time. There was uh, one time I got a a phone call. I was 17 at the time. So I'd been umpiring baseball for a couple of years, but I'd only umpired Bantam or what they call now is 15U. That's the highest I would umpired because I was playing 18U ball. So they wouldn't let me umpire my own level. So one day I got a phone call, answered it. And there was this man named Dan Brown from Alberta who was an ex-professional. I didn't know him at the time. I think he umpired up to maybe double A and he was from Edmonton area. He's on the phone and says to me, uh, I hear you're an umpire. And I'm like, yeah, I'm an umpire. And he's like, I need an umpire uh, for a game in like 10 minutes. And I said, oh, okay, no problem. Whereabouts? Where's the game? And he says, it's at Norbrook Stadium. And I paused and I said, Norbrook Stadium. The only two teams that play there are the midget team or the U18 team, which I can't umpire because I'm playing that level. Or there's the Camelot Sandpipers. And the Camelot Sandpipers at the time played in the, uh, what they call the Western International League, which has now become the Pacific International League. And it was basically a semi-pro summer collegiate type league. It was some ex-pro players and uh, college players and stuff like that. So it was a pretty good league. So I like, there's no way it's a Sandpiper game. So I asked him, what game was this? And he's like, oh, it's a Sandpiper game. It starts in like 15 minutes. Can you get here now? And I'm kind of like, I didn't know what to say. So I, I just said, oh, I put him on hold and I just put my hand over the, you know, because we didn't have mute back then. and. I uh, just put my hand over the phone and I said to my mom, I said, some guy on the phone asked me if I can umpire a Sandpipers game. What do I tell him? My mom says, sure, just say, do it. I'll take you over there. Well, so the problem was is at the time I was umpiring softball. Before that, I had my softball uniform. Well, the softball had the powder blue button up shirt, you know, the old school. But they also had the dark blue pants. I was like thinking, well, I can't wear these dark blue pants on a baseball field. They wear gray. I can't do this. And then when I did baseball uh, i did bantam level ball they provided gear so i would show up in my jeans or my sweatpants or whatever you know i didn't care and uh, i just put the string guards on that were provided and they gave us a balloon and a mask and i just went back there and brought my own indicator and and (laughs) off she went so i didn't actually have baseball gray pants yet so i show up the field with my softball umpire stuff and this umpire dan brown looks at me and says you cannot wear that on the field there's no way he says you're gonna have to wear my pants and i said <laughs> look at this guy and he's dan brown was a large man at that time and uh, and i'm not at the time i was not as large as i am now and i'm looking at him and i'm like i can't fit your pants are huge on me he's like i don't care he goes you're gonna wear them so i put these pants on and i do up the belt and this French up and sure enough i look and there's like these waves of of material like just folded over from cause these pants are about eight sizes too big for me. And he's looking at me and he says, that's terrible. He's like, no, he goes, you can't go out there like that either. he's trying to figure it out. And now we're late for the game, right? And he's like, you're gonna have to wear a jacket and put it over top. So he puts I put a jacket on and I'm looking at him like, it's thirty seven degrees out. And he's like, I don't care. You're wearing this jacket. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm nervous as heck because I'm umpiring. This game happened uh, Camelot Sandpipers versus the Alaska Gold Panthers as they used to play in interleague games between the two leagues. Okay. And I think it was Ed Sheff was the manager. And I didn't know him at the time, but Ed Sheff is not too friendly to umpires. I go out there with these gray pants of Dan's that are too big and a jacket on, and I am just drenched in sweat. Mainly because I'm nervous, but also because it's 37 degrees and I'm wearing a jacket. Yeah. So the game goes on, and I have an interference call. I can't really remember details of what happened. I end up calling an interference with bases loaded, with counts uh, on the offense, and I'm screaming to time, trying to call the interference, bringing everybody back. Everybody just keeps running. I think the batter runner ends up at third base, and everybody scores. And then I'm like, no, 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 time. I'm the 17-year-old kid trying to tell him that he has to go back to first, and all the runners, they're now in the dugout celebrating that they need to go back to first, second, and third. Well, that was not going over very well. and then, So the camel's manager came uh, running out at me, arguing at the call, of course, and was yelling and screaming at me. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be the last time they're ever going to ask me uh, to come out and do their games. And so sure enough, the game ends, and... I believe Camels lost by a couple of runs, so according to them, I probably cost them the game. And so we go into the dressing room after the game, and Danny's not saying too much to me, and uh, I'm thinking to myself, "Oh boy." So then there's a knock on the door, and Dan goes over to answer it, and it's the Camels manager, and I'm like, "Oh, this is not going to go well." But he ends up looking at me and he says, uh, "Kid, you know, you did a pretty good job today." And I'm looking at him, thinking, "Wow." He watched the same game I was like, I just called an interference to cost him three runs. So sure enough, he was you know, he was quite happy with the work I did and was asking if I could come out and do some more games. So that's kind of how my semi-pro career started. I'm not sure whether it was, you know, he thought uh, I stuck up for my call or I made a big call. I'm not sure. Or if he made me, he thought I got the right call. I have no idea. At the time when the call happened, he sure came out arguing like, yeah, like he was mad. But uh, obviously he was happy.
0: You know what they say though, the manager just trying to fire up his boys. And at the end of the day, we're always our own biggest critics. Yeah. But please tell me you went out and bought yourself a brand new pair of umpire pants.
2: Yeah, matter of fact, right as soon as that game ended, uh, my mom took me up to the Sears and Aberdeen mall and got ourselves a pair of gray dress pants that looked as close enough to base pants as we could find. And yeah, and that was, uh, yeah, that was the start of it.
0: Safe to say that's long before the availability of umpire pants on the internet. Yes. Definitely. So, Rob, you start your semi-pro career at the age of 17 before your Baseball Canada career. How did you get into the Baseball Canada umpire program? It
2: started out with um, uh, Howard Chapman seeing me in Camelins one year, and I think it was the next year I was 18. And they have the Camelins International Baseball Tournament there, which is like a money tournament where I think it's about $20,000 for top prize. So it's some pretty good baseball there. against semi-pro type caliber ball. And that year it was between 42 and 45 degrees uh, on the field we had umpires uh like howard and another umpire brian carnelli who were struggling with the heat and basically they needed somebody else to take some of the games for them brian been working with me he's from Merritt, so he'd been umpiring with me lots so he's told howard hey yeah, i think this kid can handle it and so sure enough they started throwing me in on the bases at the uh, Camelot's International Baseball Tournament. So the next year, in 1998, Howard sent me to uh, Red Deer for uh, my first national, which happened
0: to be a midget. So your first nationals a midget. That's a little bit different than today, where we typically work our way up through the ranks. You jumped into the fire there, nice and early. Yeah, back then it was not necessarily
2: a rule where you started off with the P.E. and went on. Howard would just put guys where he felt were ready for it, and um, I guess he felt I was ready for the midget. It was interesting too because the, the supervisor was from B.C. Uh, Richard Christie. Not only was it my first national, but back then as well, they didn't have the same information on all the different crews from the different area with like they do now on the Baseball Canada website site richard didn't know the other two guys he put me on the crew with so he made me the crew chief as a 22 year old so that was quite interesting as well being the crew chief but it worked out well i ended up uh, working our crew um the one of the guys made did the gold medal plate and i did the bronze medal plate uh, we had a pretty good tournament
0: well it sounds like as a crew you guys jived well together
2: yeah we did uh you know how you guys had the red button kind of thing to Help you out. Well, we had a theme song and because uh,
0: the one umpire
2: had a Cadillac, and we drove it to the park playing the theme song every time. And I think that got us going. We had a lot of fun with that. We were all kind of calm, cool, and relaxed. And and uh, just like the red button, just go out there and do your job.
0: Since Rob brings it up, if you want to hear more about pushing the red button, tune in to episode four with Sean Weatherill and Brad Johnston.
2: It's funny, too. I just add a little bit to that story of the red button because I was – directly involved in that saying of the red button when you're in the as a supervisor in that first meeting you're trying to get through all the different things that you know and you're trying not to be there all night right you're trying to go through all these things you have to get through finding the cars was taking like that conversation was taking way too long so i was just like hit the red button and you'll find the car like let's go on to the next one right (laughs) so it's pretty funny.
0: it was in that moment in that first night really made our whole tournament if you want to hear more about it tune in to episode four with Brad Johnson and Sean Weatherworld and we'll talk about pushing the red button but while you're talking about the pre-tournament meeting if you've been to one national championship you'll understand the respective formalities that people have to go through the umpires go through in regards to ground rules transportation hospitality all that fun stuff so we all know what the pre-tournament meeting really is about
2: yeah definitely that first night getting together and trying to figure something out between the three of you out of gel was very important yeah when i went to um 2014 i went to st john's newfoundland i had a crew uh david phillips and Oog, and i'm not going to pronounce his last name because i'll butcher it but basically (laughs) the first night we're all talking about the different things and i don't like to be as a as a crew chief i don't like to be a person who comes in and says this is my way or, or the highway type thing so trying to let everybody gel and trying to figure everything out And we couldn't come up on a consensus on how some of the stuff was going to get done. And they were arguing about this and that. And finally, I just said, "Okay, that's enough. I go, here's how it's going to be. This is what we're doing. And I set down kind of the law. We end up having a a really good tournament as a crew. Um, And I I think it was, you know, just setting the tone that first night is, is very important.
0: No question. It's really important to set the tone early we all like to have fun on the field, but as Dave Cass alluded to in one of the episodes is that once we're between the lines, it's all business.
2: Yeah, it is. We you know, we have a good time off the field and make sure that we don't get in any trouble off the field. Once we're on the field, it's all business. And the more that you can gel off the field, the better your performance usually is on the field.
0: Now, Rob, in total, how many national championships have you been part of?
2: As an umpire, I think it's seven.
0: Now with seven national championships under your belt, are there any that stand out?
2: Well, there's probably a couple. Uh 2005 I got down by the senior men's in in Kamloops. Kamloops be my hometown, that was kind of special. Also, 2013 I went to Sherbrooke for the Canada Games and you've talked about the Canada Games on your podcast before. It being a kind of a one-time special tournament that you get to go to. So That was uh, quite exciting to do that. I was on a crew with uh, Brian Lees and Kent Walker. We had a great time. It was interesting because we talk about, you know, you're only allowed to go to the tournament once. Well, I think it was brought up in I think Dave Cass's. It was about uh, Dave Buckingham getting knocked out and getting an exception to his one-time-only-at-Canada games.
0: (laughs) Back on Episode 7 with David Cass, he mentions that David Buckingham went to the Canada Games with Dave Cass and took a shot to the mask and took one step back, took a knee, and that was his tournament. So yeah,
2: Dave uh, Buckingham uh, was my supervisor in, in 2000. So it was great to see Dave there again. And he got this exemption of going to a Canada Games the second time. And so I hadn't seen Dave in 13 years. And so it was great. But one of the things that was funny was well, not maybe funny is the wrong word, but we have a night off our crew, so we decided to go out with another crew, and we decided to have a nice dinner at a steak and, and a ribs place, and so I sit down, I order my food, I order a beer. The beer comes to the table, a nice big tall one. I was really looking forward to it. I actually picked it up, and then my phone rang, so I put it back down and didn't take a drink of it, and I look, and it's Derek DeBell, and I'm like, oh, hey Derek, what's up? And he's like, I need you to go to Kodokuk. Well, from Sherbrooke, Kodakuk is about 45-minute drive. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, Bucky got knocked out again. I'm like, what do you mean he got knocked out again? And I thought he was pulling my leg. So I'm telling Derek, I'm like, no, "Stop will not pulling my leg. He's like, no, I'm serious. He got KO'd. He got taken away in an ambulance. They've gone to a two-umpire system. It was Lisa Turbet and Dave Ford. Lisa's got on the plate and Dave on the bases, but we want to send another base umpire out there finished. So I'm looking at this beer and I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. I now have to call a driver to come pick me up from the restaurant, take me back to the dorms in Sherbrooke and then drive out to Coda Cook. So it takes me like, like an hour to get out there. <laughs> so I get out there and John Oko is one of the other supervisors. He's in the dress room when I get, when I arrive and I look in the dressing room and there is this Buckingham's Jersey. It's been cut. The ambulance attendant's cut it right up the middle. And apparently what happened was he got hit in the mask. He's on the plate. And he went starfish straight back, KO'd for a bit. So I see this jersey just lying on the floor of the dressing room. And I'm like, I go, John, I go, what happened? I go, is Bucky dead? Like, what the heck is going on? John's kind of like, I think he's OK. He was conscious when he left. And then they rushed him off in the ambulance. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, you got to be kidding me, right? So now I finished this game, on third base. And that night, we had an umpires meeting <clears throat> every night we did. And so we're having this umpire meeting. And John, is well, he's talking about, hey, you know, Dave likes to joke around, but this was a really serious thing, blah, blah, blah. Let's be serious with Dave and not joke about this. I'm getting KO'd again. Right? It was a really scary, kind of serious incident. Sure enough, we look over, and they let Dave out of the hospital a couple hours later. Somehow, he got a ride to the dorms on his own, and he's peeking through the window, holding a adult beverage in hand and laughing at us. <laughs> and then he opens the door and he's like, Hey boys, I'm ready to go. And he umpired the rest of the tournament. <laughs> no problems. He was good to go. Uh, he's told me I already got KO'd out of one tournament. I'm not getting KO'd out of a second tournament. So yeah, that was a pretty memorable moment in uh, Sherbrooke. And the next year I went to St. John's for the senior men's and sure enough, Bucky was one of my supervisors that year. Sure enough in the umpire's dress room in St. John's had the, <laughs> the Jersey is framed up, pinned on the wall that he uh, they cut up that night. So he's got that proudly displayed in the umpire's room in, in St. John's. So it's pretty funny.
0: I've only met the guy briefly in a handshake, but from what I hear, he's quite the cat. Uh, yes, he is. Now, I find it funny that he keeps popping up on this show regularly, and maybe someday I'll have the opportunity to bring him on and let him defend himself against all these stories. Now, Rob, time to move on from your Baseball Canada experiences, and let's talk about your international game. You've worked at many international championships between the former IBF and the current WBSC. How many championships have you worked in total?
2: Uh, it would be, I believe, six tournaments. Yeah, it started in 2004. I actually went to the first ever Women's World Cup, which was in Edmonton. So that was kind of a neat thing to be a part of history on that. We uh, had a really great experience there. There was actually three female Canadian umpires that were at that, Lisa Trevet, Gwen Young from Alberta. I don't believe she umpires anymore. And Corinne. And again, I'm bad with the French name, so I'm not going to butcher her last name. Yeah, there was three female umpires there, umpires from all over the world. So it was really great. It was a really good, fun tournament. And then after that, in 2008, I went back to Edmonton again for the World Youth, which is now the U18. Really good uh, tournament. Uh, It was interesting that when they made us stay in the dorms where the players were staying, and uh, a lot of the Cuban uh, players were defecting. And so it was every morning at breakfast, we were counting heads to see how, because they only had 18 to start with. I think of five of them defected. Oh, wow. By the end of the tournament, they were throwing the right fielder on the mound because so many guys had defected. So it was an interesting tournament for that way.
0: No question. It's really interesting, the geopolitical games that go on during the games. But moving on, was it 2011 when you got to umpire at the Pan Am Games?
2: Yeah, so 2011 was uh, Pan Am Games. Um, it was actually... Guadalajara, Mexico, but uh, the baseball was actually in a town called Lagos de Moreno, which was about two hours outside of Guadalajara, which was in some ways good. I wanted to see some other sports, which I did get to see in one day. We took a bus ride on our day off, uh, but it was also neat. that It was just a small town compared to Guadalajara. It was only about 80,000 people, uh, <laughs> not seven or eight million or wherever they have. The whole town was really involved because baseball was the only event there. And they built a brand new stadium there. The stadium actually... Wasn't even finished when we arrived. They, they were still putting dirt in the infield on the day before the tournament. They hadn't done, oh, wow. finished the dirt. And uh, yeah, so it was, it was interesting. We weren't sure how the field was going to hold up because it had three games a day in it. And, but it did hold up amazingly enough. Security there was really crazy. We had um, uh, guards at our motel. Our motel was only technical and ump- people and umpires. And so 24-7 there was um, armed soldiers outside our hotel with machine guns. Ah, uh, they were really worried that the cartel at that point was going to make some sort of statement during the Pan Am Games uh, to get on the news. Uh, we got a bus that drove us to and from the field, which was about a half an hour away. It was always had two or three different um, police trucks with machine guns. Uh, we were basically so yeah, we were basically escorted, military police, and so it was it was quite an interesting experience. And then even when we got to the stadium, there was probably another 200 military guys with machine guns and. Uh, during the game there was helicopters flying around the field like just around outside the, the light standards with you know the old style like the vietnam type helicopters with the side open with the gun up you know on the side and i was kind of umpiring third base and trying to focus on the game and then looking up at the helicopter seeing the machine gun kind of going oh my gosh <laughs> so that yeah, was interesting experience that way
0: now i've heard a lot of stories about umpires getting escorted off the field by police but never to the game <laughs>
2: yeah, well, I got escorted off as well, but <laughs> but yeah, no, we were uh, the security was high, really neat. I ended up umpiring the semifinal between uh, Cuba and the United States, which ended up being a twelve to ten win for the U.S. It was twelve too early in the game for the U.S., and then Cuba just kept picking away and, and coming crawling back into the game. And next thing you know, it's twelve ten, and and uh, it was almost a five-hour marathon. I was exhausted mentally and physically exhausted in the game but it was so much fun to do uh, getting an umpire cuba in the united states at any time especially at the senior level is uh, quite the experience also got to meet a lot of great umpires all over uh, north and south america and worked with a cuban umpire named cesar valdez he was quite the character he uh, he refused to wear shin guards so even though we were provided with equipment uh, he didn't wear shin guards and so he was quite a, a big, tough man. And he's like, no, no, no shin guards. No, no. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, yeah, he never wore shin guards. Caesar was also famous for umpiring in Baltimore in 1999 with the uh, Baltimore Orioles and the Cuban National Team Exhibition Series. And during the game, he was umpiring second base. And there was an anti-Castro protester, I believe, came out of the field. I think he was even burning the Cuban flag on the field. Caesar basically picked this guy up, body slammed him, and then just started punching him. Probably would have killed the guy, except that B.J. Scherhoff, who was playing right field at the time from Baltimore, um, came running in and tried to pull Caesar off this guy so he wouldn't kill him. Caesar became a national hero at home for this, and Fidel was watching the game on TV, of course, and when he got home, he was basically... I think they bought him a house. They bought him a Audi. Uh, he was on the payroll for the rest of the time, and <laughs> and basically he just on umpire. So he was a legend, and, and it was it was quite the experience to to work with him. So.
0: Who says being patriotic doesn't pay for itself? Yeah, that's definitely he. Uh, he definitely took care of his uh, country. Well, let's be a little patriotic here in Canada and throw in a Bachman Turner Overdrive reference and say that he was just taking care of business. Yep. Yeah. So after the 2011 Pan Am Games, where do you head to next? Next one
2: was 2015, was the Pan Am Games again in Toronto. I was actually quite shocked to get the Pan Am Games twice. You know, the other one, I was the only Canadian there. You know, my roommate happened to be American and we got, became really good friends, Randy Burns. So it was really awesome experience. Working the Pan Am Games on Canadian soil with a lot of Canadian umpires, uh, such as uh, Mitch Ball was there, Darren Scott, John Oko, Ron Suchuk, and myself. And then uh, for the women's side, there was uh, Elmer Jerkovich and Ron Pauls, and Corey Davis, I believe, were there. So yeah, it was a really neat experience to be part of that. I also did umpire the semifinal game on the plate there between, again, Cuba and the United States, uh, which I believe the U.S. won six to five. Uh, it was kind of deja vu, two Pan Am games and two semifinal plates between the same two teams. So.
0: It is kind of deja vu, but for all those listening, we all know that Canada went on to win the gold medal and beat USA in extra innings. But considering deja vu, Rob, is it common to get that tournament assigned to you twice?
2: Uh, Traditionally, no, it's not. Um, I think the exception this time was because uh, it was in Canada. They had more the five in the men's side and three in the women's side. So there was more Canadian spots. So I think that it was my favorite. I believe it was in a different country. There's no way I would have got it twice in a row. The last one was in Lima, Peru, and I think it was uh, Keith McConkey
0: went there. And that's interesting. Now let's consider the scope of the event. The Pan Am Games are considered right below the Olympics, right? Because it's considered a qualifier some years. Uh, yes,
2: and and for me, um, the Pan Am Games is really special. I, I always, um, I had a goal to umpire in the Olympics, but realistically. Working in a multi-sport event like this was amazing. Um, the first in 2011 when I went, I w- baseball was in the second week, so it was unfortunate that I wasn't able to go the opening ceremonies because that was a big thing that I really wanted to be a part of an opening ceremonies for a Pan Am Games or an Olympics or something like that. Um, so I, I was disappointed, but then when I got the chance in 2015, baseball was early. Um, I was at the opening ceremonies in Toronto, so that was very special for me seeing all the other athletes and all in different sports we went to as well to watch. And even when, like I said, we were in Guadalajara or we we're in Lagos the Moreno. We were two hours out of Guadalajara. We spent our day off. It was originally supposed to be a whole bunch of umpires that they were in, they brought a bus and they were going to take us to Guadalajara so we could go around and see the different sporting events. But of course, what being our day off the next day, our only day off, we, might have partied a little bit hard that night, had a few pops, I'm not sure, can't remember, it's kind of blurry. So the next day when the bus arrived at 7.30 in the morning, there was only four of us that actually woke up. We actually tried to wake up some of the other guys, and they told us, no, not going today. <laughs> I don't regret that because it was really great. because We saw the gold medal women's softball final, we watched some gymnastics, we watched some soccer, there were some other sports we went to.
0: Now, it sounds like you had a really good experience and something you might not have experienced if you hadn't started umpiring at the age of 15 and called interference in those extra baggy Dave Brown pants and that jacket on that hot day.
2: Yeah, definitely. um, And and getting the experience that I did at a young age, yeah, definitely helped.
0: Now, moving away from Toronto, where was your next international event? In 2017,
2: I went to the... Uh, world or what, the U18 Championship in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Again, that was another great experience uh, to umpire with a lot of Canadian umpires.
0: Now it's always nice to umpire a tournament on your home soil, and you get to show off your craft. Now I've been asked to ask you, can you tell us about the Italian fan club?
2: Oh boy, I was hoping this wasn't going to get brought up. The last game I had of the tournament was Italy versus netherlands and even though it was kind of a one on the loser bracket the the game means a lot because they give points based on the rankings this game meant something for the rankings and that's the points is based off money that the federation will get even though this was seemed like another game it was a big game between italy and netherlands so sure enough there was a play uh late in the game uh it was a tight score. i think they were italy was down by one and their best hitter was up to bat and this guy was hitting bombs all the time he's up and he fouls one off towards the first base side. The umpire from first base, I don't remember his name, but he was from uh, Taiwan. The first base makes a diving catch away from the first base umpire. Me being the plate umpire, I came into foul territory to see if I could get an angle. He was much closer, but I could tell right away that he didn't have a very good angle, and I made eye contact with him, and I could see that he did not know what happened. So I would seen what happened was it, it hit the webbing of the glove and kind of bounced up but never hit the ground and then the and then the first baseman caught it so it looked like it bounced but it really didn't it it just hit the webbing part of his glove and i saw it clearly and had a good angle of it even though i wasn't as close as the other umpire Um, so once i made eye contact with him and saw that he wasn't going to make a call i came up selling my out call and then next you know as i see four uh, coaches and a manager come screaming at me like trevor dreary says i put up the stop sign because that's you know universal and they stopped and i said hey one guy i want to talk to one guy the uh italian manager could speak pretty good english and so he was holding back his guys telling him to go back i started having a conversation with him i explained to him what i saw obviously he didn't agree uh, but after a uh, a discussion about the call obviously went with the out call that i saw so they weren't happy with it and the next batter i believe went out and the game ended well game ends andrew higgins was one of the uh, supervisors so he knows there's trouble and the only way to get off the field is through the Italian dugout.
0: Of course, right. And
2: and so Andrew is in there and they are giving it to me and Andrew is giving it back to them
0: just as much.
2: I can't say the words that Andrew was saying to them, but there was some vulgar words going back and forth between them. And he's helping me off. Actually, no, there was one security guy that came onto the field. He went out to get the other umpires off the field. Well, who cares about them? They, they're not trying to kill them. They're trying to kill me. So I'm off and now I'm on my own. I'm now in the crowd. So the Italian fans start yelling and basically screaming at me. I'm right in the middle with all these Italian fans. Meanwhile, Andrew is trying to get the other guys off the field. The security guard's trying to find the other umpires. And I'm on my own with the Italian fans. So I get to the dressing room. And of course, the dressing room is locked because the security guard that's on the field has the key. So now I'm there and these fans are just giving it to me. Right. I'm just standing there. and I got nowhere to go. I can't get in the dressing room. And they're just screaming at me. And I'm. Trying to be, um, you know, especially with nowadays with video cameras, I'm trying to be politically correct and just ignore them, even though I, I didn't want to. So we finally get into the dressing room with the security guard that has the key and we're hanging out. These Italian fans are waiting for us outside the dressing room and they won't move. So we slowly get changed. They're still there. Andrew goes out, talks to them and tells them that he's gonna phone the cops. They're like, I don't care. We're <laughs> waiting for you guys to come out. And I'm sitting like, oh my goodness. So eventually we waited, we phoned the cops, no cops show up. So we're waiting and waiting. These guys are now waiting in the parking lot. So there's nobody here besides us, the security <laughs> guard, and some fans in the parking lot that are waiting for us. Like I said, we called the cops like half an hour ago. Nobody shows up. Finally, the we just waited them out and the fans finally decided, oh, okay, forget it. I'm going, going for beers or whatever. I don't know. And they left. So we finally were able to leave after probably about 45 minutes of hanging out in the dressing room waiting for these fans that wanted to kill us um mm. <laughs> the italian fans in the parking lot yeah. so yeah not sure if i'll be welcome to italy don't know <laughs> if i've ever be, be welcome to cuba you know so a couple of countries are probably off the list
0: well that rounds out your international experience and a good event or a memorable event to end on you could say yeah for now
2: um now i'm really more focused on uh, just umpiring and maybe doing some supervising
0: well, that's fair, Rob, but this is Leading Edge Umpire Stories, and we still want to hear some stories of your own. Can you share with us some of the leagues that you've worked here in Canada?
2: Quite so. The, we have the Pacific International League, which was the Western International League, which is the semi-pro league, uh, kind of a summer collegiate. I've also umpired in umpired in the Golden League, which is independent pro. I've also umpired in the Northwest League as a fill-in umpire for pro umpires they ever get injured or can't make it over the border uh quite often the last two the last two weeks of august they don't uh, promote so if a guy gets injured or they had one year there was a japanese umpire that went home and quit they would uh, Vancouver your canadians to call me directly and say hey can you do this series or i get a call at 10 o'clock at night saying hey the umpire got a concussion and you umpire noon or tomorrow uh, i would email my boss and say i'm not coming in tomorrow and <laughs> yeah so it was quite fun i ended up doing about 25 or so maybe games in the northwest league over uh, we'll probably spent 10 years.
0: Now for those listening, the Northwest League has been brought up on another episode with Aaron Roberts. Aaron talks about his time working the Northwest League full time. We also talk about the only Canadian affiliate in the league of the Vancouver Canadians. Then they're the MILB affiliate single A of the Blue Jays.
2: I do have a pretty funny story from that one. I was umpiring uh, one of the times I did a series and I was on the bases. And one of the big things with doing the Northwest League, it's a two umpire system. And and the baseball is very quick compared to even college ball or whatever. Two umpire system in that is difficult. And I'm not necessarily the most mobile man in the world, but I can get it around. I can usually anticipate and stuff like that. But this time, I made a bad decision. And what happened was the ball got hit to the shortstop and plays the ball. And I realized that, okay, I'm in a bad spot. He's going to be throwing right over me. So I went towards the mound to try to get out of his way on the inside. Well, the problem is once he got the ball, he kept um, stumbling towards theory. So now I'm realizing that I'm still going with him and I'm still in his way. So I'm near the mound now. And now I realize I need to get away from the that. And, I, and now I did change my mind. I start heading back towards like the P3, P4 positions. So I'm now heading back the other way. And then he makes an off-balance throw and I could see it coming right at me. And I'm trying to get out of the way. And it was like just tunnel vision, like the things coming right I mean, I couldn't get out of the way, way. It hit me right in the back pocket. I couldn't get a big enough shovel to try to dig you know, a hole and try to hide. And so sure enough, manager for Banker of comes out and he and he went right to the pro umpire, and he's talking. And he's just like, "But it hit Rob." That's all I could hear to him. He, "But it hit Rob. But it hit Rob." And I'm just sitting there going, "Oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. This can't be really happening." They're going back and forth, and he's the pro umpire is trying to tell him, that "It doesn't matter. That him. He's he's nothing. He's like dirt, right?" Yeah. Next, you know, they stop arguing, and then I can just see both of them are covering their faces because they're both laughing at me. Right. And I'm like, "Oh my gosh." So yeah, that was a pretty funny story there. The other one that same umpire i did on the plate got to umpire the san diego chicken that was quite the experience too because there was a manager on the other side named pat murphy managed the san diego padres at one point pat murphy's not very nice to the umpires and he was just screaming at us the night before and now i'm doing the plate. san diego chicken's name is ted he comes into the dressing room before the game and says to us all these different things he's gonna do and the first thing i'm gonna do this and second i'm doing this third thing i'm doing this and i and you need to do this and i'm just like I'm really focused on trying to call balls and strikes. And I'm a little yeah. bit nervous because I know this manager is not the nicest guy to umpires. And, and so I said, to the, I said to Ted, I'm like, okay, here's the deal. I'm not a professional umpire. I'm an amateur umpire. I'm filling in as a pro umpire. Gotta admit, I'm a bit nervous with this game with this manager who's not the nicest guy. If this manager starts yelling at me, like, I don't really want to, have to deal with this all this other stuff. And he's like, hey, no problem. I'll watch for it. If that starts happening, I'll back off you and I'll do other things. I have plan B. I said, oh, thank goodness. Sure enough, Pat didn't, Murphy didn't say a word about my strike zone. I don't know if Ted went and talked to him and said, hey, can you leave this kid alone so I can do my stuff or what? But I didn't have a word said to me about strike zone. So it was a really fun uh, fun night to do with the San Diego Chicken. It was, It was pretty awesome.
0: That is pretty awesome. You got protected by the San Diego Chicken.
2: Yeah, I believe I did.
0: Now, you worked a little bit of the Northwest League, but you also said you worked the Golden League. Can you explain to us what the Golden League was?
2: Yeah, so basically the Golden League is an independent professional ball. It's uh, higher, I would say, than the semi-professional ball. Uh, A lot of these guys uh, were affiliated and uh, got released from their major league club, minor league clubs or whatever, that the major league affiliates. And they're trying to – this is their last chance. They're, They're back in this league, and they're trying to get somebody to notice them, so somebody will sign them back in a minor league contract. Um, so it was quite the experience. Uh, I know a lot of the guys in Western Canada got to umpire it, but, and they'll know, it was really like the toughest baseball I've ever umpired. Really the guys were like every pitch, if, you know, because they were trying to get back into affiliated ball, if you called a strike that they didn't think was a strike, they would scream and yell at you. <clears throat> it's a lot more intensity because there was money on the line, right? Their careers are on the line, basically. If they felt that you were not doing a very good job, that that was costing them money or their next chance to get back into affiliated ball. It wasn't necessarily the teams would yell at you too much, but those individual players would be really pissed off here, the individual pitchers. So it was just a really intense level to work, um, but I really learned a lot from it. And I got to work with guys like Ian who worked in that league after he got released by minor league baseball after umpiring major league baseball. So that was really neat to work with guys. And there was also U.S. umpires that came in. And to work with those guys and the things that they, these ex-professional umpires, learned or would teach you would be just like, oh, I never thought of that. And that just the experience that you got from those type of umpires working with those type of umpires was was really amazing and really helped my my game.
0: Now, Rob, earlier on in the show, you mentioned that you umpired at the KIBT tournament or the Kibbet tournament. BC's known to have some big money prize tournaments. Have you umpired in any other tournaments there in BC? Uh,
2: yeah, there's another one that's probably even bigger than the kibit Tournament, and that is the uh, GFI, the Grand Forks International. Uh, I've been in that one for, I think, close to the last 20 years or so off and on. Uh, I missed a few years here and there. But Grand Forks International has, it's kind of a neat, it's a small little community. They bring this tournament on every year, and it's um, 54, I think it's $54,000 in prize money, meaning, and also having $40,000 to the top prize. So this really brings in. Uh, some caliber players. I know a lot of the teams will fly in a, a college stud pitcher uh, just for one game. right? Uh-huh. They'll, they'll fly him into Spokane and drive him over the border and he'll pitch one game, they'll pay him some money and he'll go. Wow! And he won't be there for the rest of the tournament. Um, I, I know in that tournament they've had the, I think John Rover played in there, Larry Walker, uh, Josh Beckett, uh, Linskin, Tim Linskin pitched there. I actually saw Linskin pitch. Uh, he was 18 at the time. This is before he had the long hair and everything. And he was playing for Washington State. I remember before the game, we happened to see the Seattle Studs, which is one of the teams that plays in that tournament lots, manager Barry Aiden, and he said to us, he's like, hey, who's got the next game? And it happened to be Steve Boutin was on the next game on the plate. and Me and Don Haas were <clears throat> on the bases, and we were eating lunch. And, of course, Grand Forks is not a very big place, so you pick a place for lunch, there's probably about a 90% chance that there's going to be another ball player or a coach or so, of course, we go for lunch, and Barry Adams there. So, he's like, Yeah, I got a real treat for you guys next game. I got this kid from Washington State, you know, and he doesn't look like he's more than about 125 pounds soaking wet, but this kid can throw like 95 miles an hour. And he's got this funky delivery, and blah, blah, blah. He's talking about, him. we're kind of like, All right, you know, so we go to the game, and sure enough, this kid goes out on the mound, and I, I'm i looking at him, like, This kid doesn't look like he's a bit older than 12. There's no way this kid can throw 95 miles an hour. And sure enough, he throws his first warm-up. Because I see that funky wind-up, and I'm like, "Holy cow!" Right? Like, and I'm just like, "Wow, that was something to see at that age before he was uh, famous and it was it was pretty good."
0: Well, it's interesting because since I moved to western part of the country, I have turned into a little bit of a Giants fan and an A's fan, though I'm a Blue Jays fan at heart. Simply because I can watch them and watch the games later. But Tim Lincecum, let's talk about him quickly. He has three World Series championship rings. He's a four-time All-Star. He has a Cy Young. So looking back on that, it must be really interesting that now you can look back and say, hey, I got to see Tim Lincecum back before he made it to the show.
2: Yeah, it was kind of a neat experience to say. I was only on the bases, but I still saw Lincecum pitch at 18.
0: Now, this is a little bit of inside information that we've talked in the past, Rob, but you mentioned the name Larry Walker. Now, in Canada, when we say Larry Walker, we mean a big deal. Larry is part of the 2020 Hall of Fame inductee class, along with Derek Jeter. So the two of them are going in, well, not this year because it's been delayed because of the COVID, and they'll get inducted in 2021. But can you share with us your connection to Larry Walker?
2: When I was living in Vancouver, I lived in Maple Ridge for, I think, 14 years. And at the time when I first moved there, Larry Walker was the uh, senior. Uh, his dad was the umpire in chief for Maple uh, Ridge Meadows Minor Baseball. So Larry and I have got to know each other really well. Uh, he's a really great man. He umpires still to this day. He does. It, it's funny. He umpires with his son. Larry always does the play. I've even seen double headers, and Larry always wants to do the plate. And his son works the bases with him. And they do the games together, and uh, it, he's just a really neat guy, really neat person. Like I said, I really got to know him really well, and he umpired a lot with my son playing, and he always liked seeing my son because my son's a catcher, and he can actually catch the ball where a lot of the kids in, in that league that he was umpiring can't catch the ball. So he was always very grateful to see my son Kyle there. and My son Kyle is also now is an umpire, as well and so Larry would help him out as well. So that was it was a really neat thing to get to know Larry.
0: What a fantastic Canadian connection to umpiring in Major League Baseball. Now, unlike Caesar, I really hope Larry was wearing the shin pads when he was umpiring your son's teams. Yeah, when he remembers,
2: I'm sure he, he puts some. <laughs> oh, no, that's Ron Paul's that always forgets the shin <laughs> guards. Never
0: mind. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, isn't it funny how small the baseball community is here in Canada, even though the country is so big?
2: It is. And I have friends from all over the world basically because of baseball and it was interesting too in 2000 or 97 i went to umpire school right in 2008 when i went to world youth uh in edmonton one of the umpires there was, was from australia trent thomas who i'm very good friends with he was at umpire school in 97 with me as well and same with like chris norton right you know it's pretty funny you run into the same guys over and over again and and uh, it's just a great camaraderie between everybody
0: That's fair. And when it comes to Chris Norton, you run into him, whether you want to or not. (laughs) Well, Rob, instead of running into Chris Norton right now, let's run right into our favorite part of the show. It's called 10 questions. I ask you 10 questions. If I like your answer, you hear. (coughs) And if I disagree with you, you're going to get a simple. (coughs) Let's see where this goes and where it can take us.
2: All right, Let's see how it goes.
0: Now you moved to Alberta. I'm assuming you have a truck. Are you a Ford or a Chevy kind of guy? Ford. <laughs> I think the horn speaks for itself because if it was a Ford, the horn wouldn't even work.
2: <laughs> they, they got the heated uh, tailgates now so that when you
0: when when your vehicle dies,
2: your truck dies, you can at least sit on the tailgate and you, when you're pushing, your hands stay warm, right?
0: What a fantastic idea, but the battery doesn't kick in. Well, it's a fixer <laughs> repair daily anyway, so who cares? What was the last VHS movie you can remember renting? Stand by me. Though not a baseball movie written by a baseball fanatic and Stephen King, that movie is a classic. Yeah. Now tell us, did you have a blockbuster card? I did actually.
2: You know, I'm so old that we used to have to rent the VHS recorder as well. So my dad it would be movie night and we would actually rent the machine and the movie. <laughs> so it was a costly night. It was-
0: and you had to bring it back by noon the next day so the next family down the street could get it.
2: That's right. And you know, it's the point where I always had to have a James Bond movie and okay. uh and then whatever else we wanted to watch, because my dad was a big James Bond fan. So
0: speaking of your dad, you mentioned that Larry Walker umpired with his son. Did you ever get the opportunity to umpire with your father?
2: Yes, I did. Uh we umpired quite a few games together for probably about three or four years in a row, I'd say. My dad just he's not as an umpire anymore and he kinda Went away from umpiring once I was a little bit older.
0: That's something to share with your father. It's a nice experience, I'd say.
2: Yeah, I'm really hoping, too, that I will get to umpire with Kyle soon. Like, he's umpiring. Uh, he's also rest hockey. But I'm hoping he gets, I get to umpire with him soon, as well as uh, my youngest son, Matthew. He just turned 11. He wants to umpire as well. So maybe we'll have a three umpire system for the three
0: of us. That's fantastic to hear. Umpiring can be a lifelong family endeavor. And based on your resume, your kids have a good role model to look up to. Now, back to 10 questions. You go into a restaurant. Are you picking chicken or beef gravy? Okay. pick both.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, well, will chicken.
0: <laughs> you can always pick both gravy. I'm never going to say no. Now, being a dad, I'm sure one of the meals on a weekend you're responsible for. Tell me, which meal of the day is your specialty?
2: Is barbecue a meal? That's the only thing I can cook is the barbecue. <laughs>
0: Of course, barbecues a meal. Tell me, what is the top item on your menu? Uh, barbecued steak, I'd say. Makes sense. You can't go wrong unless you cook it too long. <laughs> it's always good to hear that filet mignon is on the menu at Rob Allen's house. Okay, Rob, you've been a supervisor at a few tournaments and, you know, guys suck up to supervisors. That's just the way it is. It's 7 a.m. and you need a coffee. The guy brings you a coffee to the ball field. What do you take in it?
2: I actually don't drink coffee. It stunts your growth.
0: Makes sense. You're about six foot seven, but it's 10 PM. What are you picking?
2: Uh, diet Pepsi.
0: I love my diet Pepsi's. Now let's moving on. On episode four, we talked a lot about Garth Brooks and you were there. Tell us what's your favorite Garth Brooks song.
2: <laughs> I actually don't like country at all, but I actually went to Garth Brooks concert once when I was very young. It's Blaze LaVey that likes country music, so.
0: Okay, okay, let's leave Blaze out of this one. Now, as we've heard today, you've been around the world umpiring. Where was the first place you ever flew to?
2: The first place I actually ever flew to was Orlando, Florida for umpire school in 1997.
0: Direct out of Vancouver?
2: Yeah, well, what is interesting because... I was living in Canloops at the time, and there was a huge snowstorm. The Coquihalla Highway kept closing, and then the Fraser Canyon kept closing, so it couldn't decide which way to go. So we decided I was going to take the bus, uh, hope that I make it there to Vancouver, because my flight was actually out of Seattle, because I was too cheap to pay for my flight out of either Canloops or Vancouver. Basically, we left early, or left early because I wasn't sure if I was going to get there. Ended up being a 24-hour trip to get to Vancouver, and then... The roads were flooded from Vancouver to Seattle, so I couldn't get there. So I had to actually buy another flight to get from Vancouver to Seattle. So I think it was like 48 hours before I got to Florida. I was exhausted. I stunk. I was, yeah, it was quite the experience for
0: my first flight. That sounds like a rookie flyer mistake. Just next time, buy the ticket at a Kamloops, save yourself the hassle. But I guess that umpire school probably got better from there. Yes. Until, of course, you pulled out the clicker. Except for the clicker. That clicker will get you every time. Now you've been around baseball a long time. Have you ever been to a major league game?
2: Uh, yeah, I've been to
0: lots. What was your first one? Where?
2: First one would have been the King Dome, Blue Jays versus the Mariners, in probably
0: somewhere in the '80s. Long before Griffey. Yeah. Rather interesting. You bring up the King Dome. I grew up in Miramichi, New Brunswick, and the folklore tale of a Mr. John Can hitting a big shot to the upper deck at the King Dome. And what makes it interesting is you mentioned Blaise LeVay earlier. He played with Blaze back there in the 91, 92, 93 era as part of Team Canada, where Blaze was hitting home runs back in 91 to help the World Youth team capture the gold medal at the World Youth Games in Brandon, Manitoba. Can or Hatch or Hammer, whatever you want to refer to him as, was hitting home runs to win Canada the bronze medal at the 93 University Games in Buffalo, New York. <laughs> Once again, it just goes to show how small the baseball community is here in Canada. Wow. Now, considering you have a lot of experience at the international level and you've watched a few major league games in your day, tell us, what do you prefer when it comes to the tie-breaking rule? The international rule where they start runners at first and second, or do you prefer the traditional baseball? Play it out.
2: Well, anything that can make the game shorter when I'm on the field, (laughs) I'll go for it. So definitely the tie-breaker rule. Um, However, there was one time where uh, I was umpiring in 2011, my first game of the tournament was between Mexico and Panama. Game was tied after nine, so we do the tiebreaker rule. Well, the Latin American players don't like to bunt too much. They like to swing and usually swing hard. Getting them to actually lay down a bunt at that point because there's runners at first and second and out, no, they couldn't do it if the life depended. There was double plays, there was runners at a third, end up being 14th inning before anybody scored a run with the tiebreaker rule so (laughs) besides that day I would say the tiebreaker rule is great
1: well it's
0: good that the players will try their best to get you off the field as quick as you can because you've said before sometimes you got a big zone and sometimes you got a little zone (laughs) now Rob you've been around the world a little bit have a lot of experience with baseball you must have some goals now that you still want to accomplish what are they
2: well I think on the field um, baseball doing very good to me as I think they've Cass said that baseball been very good to me on the field i have less goals but more be off the field now uh supervising helping other umpires come to the next level is kind of where i'm pushing my goals towards now so yeah you know i've had a, a great career internationally and we have lots of young umpires now that are coming up that are, are great international umpires so i feel that my place right now is to to help out with the supervising and I'm on the uh, supervisor's portfolio for Baseball Canada. Wherever a way I can help out with supervising or bringing up other young umpires uh, is really where I want to focus on.
0: Well, thank you for doing that, Rob, because giving back is really important to the Baseball Canada program and it helps younger umpires like myself develop and potentially have the opportunities that you have. Now, this really leads into the last section of the show where we call it Local Legends. This is where I gave you the opportunity to share with us somebody who might have helped you along the way or somebody at the local level that you think needs some recognition. So, Rob, who are your local legends?
2: Well, I, I'm having trouble with sticking with one, so I'm going to give you a few. The first one on the list is a man named Brian Carnelli, who's uh, out of Merit, which is just outside of Counts. And when I was young coming up, he really took me under his wing and he was just such a, you know, teaching me all day long. And, you know, there's been lots of great umpires that have come out of Kamloops. And a lot of this is done with the foundation that Brian Corneli had done over the years. Even indirectly, he taught some other umpires like Chris Hartley and Matt Lowndes. And and then that gets passed on to guys like Matt Hicketts. And there's been a lot of great umpires from Kamloops. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, either directly or indirectly with Brian Corneli. Next on my list would be they were like a married couple, Howard Chapman and Ozzy Chavarria, uh, working so many tournaments with them, you know, watching them go back and forth at each other and then the stuff, that, the way they worked on the field. Howard was umpiring up until 75 years old when he passed. And he had trouble on the bases when he was at that age, but man, balls and strikes, he could call a game. And then the last two people I like you know, to talk about is um, I umpired hundreds and hundreds of games with Steve Boutang and Don Haas. And the three of us always seem to be on a crew together. And Don Haas, uh, no longer umpires, uh, he had a stroke in I think, 2007. He went to the world championships and that, and, and really helped me along with handling situations and others sort of that. And then getting to work with Steve Butang, uh, right from, I started working with Steve when I was probably 18 or 19. Working with those guys have been really great experience.
0: Is it safe to say that those relationships you've built are not just on the field, but you carry them with you off the field?
2: Yeah, definitely off the field um, very close with Don and Steve and then you know I was in the wedding party for uh, Steve butang Matt Lowndes I was in his wedding party Chris Hartley uh, will Hunter, you know all these guys I've been you know either the best man or a groomsman in their wedding so you know those are where all my friends in my in my life have come from is from umpiring and from baseball so uh, it's pretty special to me
0: now just so you know this is a post show ad. I brought Rob on to hear about his umpire stories. I didn't realize he had such a significant wedding party resume. Maybe I'll bring him on the show sometime and we can hear about some of those stories about all the weddings he's crashed and how much he charges to be in those wedding parties. Anyways, let's get back to the show. Rob, it's good that umpiring's brought you a lot of friendships over the years and it's special to you because it's special to a lot of us.
2: Yeah, it definitely is. It's It's just kind of a, a great fraternity, friends all over the world because of it.
0: Well, Rob, this concludes The Leading Edge. Now, before you go, do you have any parting words of wisdom that you would like to pass off?
2: One of the things that was told for me as a young umpire, and I saw uh, Jim Cressman at a umpire clinic in BC when I was probably 17 or 18 years old. His advice was, if it could have been a strike, it probably should have been a strike. With all you young umpires out there, if it could have been a strike, it should have been a strike. That makes the game go much faster and kids are swinging bats. So that's my parting wisdom when you're umpiring, call strikes.
0: Well, that concludes this episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Join us on our next episode, where we bring on former Baseball Canada umpire-in-chief, World Baseball Classic experienced umpire, and a guy who once auditioned to be the backup singer for Shania Twain, Corey Davis. Now, before you go, we would like to leave you with this. The pitcher gets four balls before the batter walks, and the batter gets three strikes before they strike out. But the umpire only gets one chance to get it right. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. You're missing Mitch. Mitch Ball. How could I Mitch? All right, let's try this one more time.